often, guys, but I am really grateful for you and the way that you um, not only are worship leaders, but lead worshipers. So thanks, brother. And wow, those hymns just sing, don't they? I mean, um, Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? I love, I love the shock that is in that song. If you, if you listen to the words, it's as though he's just, he, he, he's just saying, I, I just, I can't believe it's true. I just, I can't believe that, that, that every sin is paid for, that, that, that all my sin atoned for, and I stand before the throne of God, pure and spotless and blameless. And it's like the only words that he can think of, and I think they're right, are, can it, can it really be? Can it really be? And, and that's the, I think that's the strength and the power that this passage invites us into today is to ask that question of ourselves and for ourselves. Can it, can it be? Can it be, man, that you, my God, would die for me? I, um, as I was thinking about this passage, it just, it was just one of those weeks for me where it just blew up in my soul. And so um, I'm excited to teach today. I, I, I always am every Sunday, but today especially as we, this passage, Ephesians 2, and you can open your Bible if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 2, is a, a perfect picture, a layout explicitly of the gospel, of the gospel. And so um, my hope and my prayer for you is that, that those of you who know Jesus Christ that he might remind you of the redemption and the rescue that he's provided for you. And I'm going to put my cards on the table. Uh, my hope for those of you who don't know Jesus is that this morning, the Holy Spirit would open your heart to see how glorious the gospel is and to see that it's for you and to see that it's for you. So um, that's, my, that's my prayer and that's my hope. As I was thinking about this passage, though, um, I, I had an experience a few uh, years ago that came back to mind. I was awakened early in the morning by my phone that was buzzing. And it wasn't my um, normal alarm clock. Um, this is probably before we had kids because now I don't need an alarm clock. Um, but I, I was awakened to a series of three friends who sent me forwards. Now, um, I'm not a forward kind of guy. I don't really send them, and I probably delete them if you send them to me, um, forwards on emails. And so I'm thinking, what? Well, so many people sending me forwards. Um, and, and I normally just delete them. I don't, I don't even read them. I mean, pandas doing somersaults and stuff is cute, but um, just not really worth my time, I didn't think. So, but all the forwards had the same subject line. They were obviously the same email. And so I thought to myself, all right, this is a forward that I should probably open. And I've got to be honest with you. When I did, I was a little bit shocked. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I opened this email and I could not believe what was staring back at me. You want to see? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Here's, here's what. So, so I clicked open and here's what was staring back at me. Me. I was, I was shocked. I'm going... Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. I didn't know I had a modeling career. You didn't either. I couldn't believe it. Now, this is my dentist, but I didn't know that he was going to hijack one of our pictures from Facebook and send it out to all of North San Diego County. 
And I didn't know that he had such poor Photoshop skills either. It looks like we have a tooth. I'll give him this. It's a really white tooth. And I was shocked. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. with. And so this is a, an ad for a, a pretty good deal on teeth whitening that I found myself in. And the deal with teeth whitening is, is hey, here's the, the sort of before and after is what they needed to do here to make the, the before Photoshop and the after Photoshop. But that's the thing is with, with this type of deal with teeth whitening is this is what they looked like before. And then you wouldn't believe after an hour in the dentist, this is what they look like now. And if you examine most infomercials and things that they're trying to sell you at their base is this is what we looked like before. And this is what we looked like after. It's this great sort of advertising campaign of you were going down this road and now you're going down a different road. And I found myself a part of it. I started to wonder, what, did it, what is it about us that likes this idea of before and after? That likes the idea of the Bowflex, where after a month of the Bowflex, we can look like that guy on the commercial, I'm sure. Right? I think it's, I think it's the idea or the proposition that there was an outcome that was certain, that there was an outcome that was determined, and that some way, some shape, some form, that was turned. And that, uh, and that now there's this new reality that's possible. There's this new hope that's possible. There's this new window that's opened up where your teeth didn't have to look like that your whole life. Now they can look like this, Right? And I think there's something about us as human beings, something about us as people, that we, we love that story. We love stories of rescue. We love stories of the inevitable being diverted. And, and I think, here's the deal. Here's what I know about me, and here's what I know about you. We love those stories. We long for those stories. Because we know in some way, some shape, some form, we need those stories. We need that reality that... A new, brighter day is possible. We need the truth that we don't need to be caught in the addiction forever. We need the hope that something could break that chain, that something could bring forth hope. We need, we need the hope that the marriage could be better, that, that the after could be different than the before, even though it doesn't seem like there's any possibility of it happening. And so we love the before and after story. We love the before and after picture. We love the idea of rescue. Of rescue. A, certain, a road was being walked for certain. And then somehow, some way, we find ourselves in a different place than we thought. And I want to invite you this morning into the scriptures that propose, that, that paint this picture of a God who's way better than any infomercial you're going to see. Of a God who provides rescue. Of a God who says to you this morning, no matter what your life looks like right now, today, this Sunday, that your after can be different than your before. That your future can be different than your present. That there is hope no matter what circumstance you're in. And if you're a follower of Jesus... 
That needs to be part of your story. That needs to be part of your song. Because if you're a follower of Christ, it goes to the very core of who you are. And let me show you how Paul writes this in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1 this morning. And we're going to be in verses 1 through 10. And this is what it says. And you were dead. Wait, just we'll take a quick time out there. Because this, if you're following along, if you've been here over the last few weeks, this sentence, this transition, transition should shock you a little bit. Because here's what last week just said. Last week, Paul writes, oh, I pray. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. That they might be opened to know the hope to which you've been called. To know the great inheritance that you are. For Christ Jesus. And to know the great power for us who believe. That's where, that's where we left off last week. I mean, it was, we said it was as though Paul was inflating this balloon. And he's just going, I want you to see how good and how gracious and how merciful and how present our God is. And so this transition from... He, Christ Jesus, is, has authority over all. And to him be all glory and praise and honor. And then he transitions into, and you were dead. Now, let me drill down a little bit in this because we're, we're going we're gonna to have some good news and some bad news. I'm going to give you the bad news first and then I'm going to invite you into the good news a little bit later. But, but I think there's something about us as people and especially as Westerners where we don't like to really drill down deep into the bad news. And so it makes the good news not quite as good. I'll tell you what Paul's saying to you. You. What he's saying to you is that you... We're dead. And here's what I know about myself. Here's what I know about myself. Is it's easy to find people who are worse than me. Not, not because I'm, I'm all that good, but just because I look really hard. <laughs> and so here's the game that we play with ourselves. We play this game and the game is, well, God, I'm not as bad as him. And so that must mean that you and I are okay because he's worse than me. And here's what this passage says is that there's no sliding scale. There's none of us that were like partially dead and he just needed CPR. No, 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 no. We were dead. You were dead anywhere from Adolf Hitler to Mother Teresa and all of us in between were dead. I had to ask myself over the course of this week, what does it really mean to be dead in our sins? Because that's what he says, is that, is that we were dead in our tra- trespass and sins. So what, is that, what does that really mean? Here's what it means, is that we were cut off from the giver of all life because of the sin that was in us. And, and here's big picture Here's what we're going to learn in the next, in these few verses, these first three verses, and then we're going to drill down deep into them. But it's this, is that the rescue of God was absolutely 100% necessary because sin rendered us powerless and deserving of God's wrath. Right about now you're thinking, glad I came this morning, right? 
I just want to say, just stick with us, stick with me for just the next few minutes. Because we need to really embrace what the Bible teaches about us apart from Jesus. This is the way it describes us apart from Christ. It says, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the what? Life. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Cut off completely. That that sin made a separation between you and God, between me and God, between all of us. And, And this needs to press on us a little bit different in a fresher way this morning. That we were all, apart from Jesus Christ, lifeless, hopeless, futureless. And I want to just give you a picture, because this is the way that the Bible describes it, is that, that you and I were designed to be attached at the very core of our being, and the very, very nature of our DNA, to be attached to God. That's why this passage says that what sin really did was alienated us from the life that was in us, the life that we were designed for, the life that we were made for. And so, here's what sin essentially did. All you people with a green thumb, you're going to love me today. Sin severed us, broke us from the life source, the giver of all life. And so here's the deal. This flower, within a few hours, is going to start to look different. It's still going to be a flower. It's still going to be a flower. It's just going to dry up and, and it's going to wither. It'll, it'll always be a flower. It will always look like a flower. It'll just start to change over the course of time as it dries up. Here's the thing. It'll always be a flower, but it won't always be alive. In fact, it'll never be alive again. And what the Bible describes about sin is that you and I were created for a relationship with God that when sin entered the picture, it it severed that. It broke that. And it left us forever, forever different. I love the way that he writes it in the rest of the book of Ephesians. We were cut off from the life, alienated from the life that God designed us to live. Now, here's the deal. There's some implications for that. There's some implications for the fact that you and I were dead. And one of them is that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. It was at the very core of our being. It was at the very core of our being. See, most people think, most of us even probably think, on some level, that sin is just the bad things that we do. But the Bible doesn't describe sin just as the bad things that we do. It describes it as the the, the condition of our heart. So sin isn't just adultery or or stealing or rooting for the raiders. Those things aren't... It's a condition of our heart. Sorry. Condition of our heart. And, and the word, the word dead here shows that sin is not just, it's not just an action. It's not just an action. But it's a state of our being. It's in our very, it's in our very nature. Which, which, all right, let me, which pushes us to a second implication, which means 
That if sin isn't primarily about being bad, then salvation isn't primarily about being good. And I think that in some subtle and some not-so-subtle ways, what the church has taught for a long time is, if you're a Christian, that means that you're a good person and you need to do good. And God, God is pleased with you if you act right and if you do good. See, here's the deal. We can change our outward actions and conform our moral behavior through our own willpower to try to act different and to try to be different. But what this passage teaches is the problem isn't so much about the things that we do. It's about who we are. And that at the very core of our nature, at the very core of our being, that sin severs us from the life that God designed us to live. See, see, the news is often worse than we tell people. But the good news is also better. Here's, here's how he continues. That you were dead in your trespass and sin. I know I've covered about seven words so far, and, and just stick with me. I'll fly through the next section here. In, once you, in which you once walked... So this was the way that we lived. This was the way that we walked. If you have your own Bible, let's circle the word were there. You were dead in your sins. It's always good to look back at who we were in light of who we now are. And he says this, in which you once walked. And he's going to list three ways that, that being dead in our trespasses and sins really got into us as people. That it got its tentacles into us and wouldn't let us go. Listen to what he says. Following the course of this world. So, first way, we live in a world that's fallen. Any amens there? Yeah, we, live in a, we live in a world that's fallen. You don't need to go much further than your evening news to, to see that. To see that really clearly. Millennia ago, uh, St. Augustine wrote that the drumbeat of the human soul is power, sex, and one other thing. Power, sex, and money. And I started to think, how much different are we today? That's the system of the world that we get have a tendency to get caught up in. And when we're dead in our transgressions and sins, that's the only thing that we know. You see, here's what we know when we're in this state, is that we're dying, we're lifeless, and we need something to give us meaning, we need something to give us hope, we need something to pour back into us. And so, one of the ways we, look, we do it is we look to the world. What can the world give us? Following the course of this world. Now, now that's like this idea, this picture of just being carried along, being forced along, as though we're enslaved, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, here's the, here's the reality that we live in, is that there's a very real enemy to your soul. His name is Satan. He hates you. He wants to destroy you. And for many of us, he does a really good job. See, Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. But you need to know that there's an enemy to your soul that loves the fact that if you're outside of Christ, this is how you are. And he loves to feed you things that look like they might start to build life back into you. But when you drill down on them, 
when you start to build your life on them, the mantra becomes more. More money. That'll make me happy. That'll, that'll reattach me to life. More power. More sex. That, 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 those things will do it. Those things will make me alive because a little bit of it didn't work. Among whom we all once lived in our passions and our flesh and the carrying out of the desires of our body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. So he says, listen, the problem is, is the world that we live in. The problem is also the devil who hates you and wants to destroy you. And then he says the problem's a little bit closer to home also. See, it's not just that we live in a sin-stained world. And it's not just that we have an enemy to our soul. It's that sin curved us in on ourselves in such a way that we became completely self-centered, selfish, and only caring about ourselves. The way he writes it. Listen, the way we all once lived, the, like the rest of mankind. See, he's making this very blanket statement. This is who you were before. This is, this is who you were before. You simply wanted your own desires. You were carried about by them. See, this position makes you scramble. Scramble for for water, scramble for sustenance, scramble for hope. And we're good at scrambling. We're so good at scrambling that sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. And here's the deal. The people you work with in the office on Monday morning, they don't know they're doing it. The people that you you live with or room with, they they don't know that they're doing it. We just know that we need something to fill us up. And we will try anything. Here's the deal. As much as we want to run from that truth, as much as we want to run from that truth, there's a greater truth that permeates all of that. And it's this, is that it's only when we understand the depth of our sin and who we are outside of Jesus Christ that can, we can really truly appreciate the reach of his grace. See, because unless you know that you were dead, not just bad, but dead, so, so Christianity is often sort of packaged as about making bad people good. You hear a lot of testimonies like this. I used to do this and now I do this. I used to be like that and now, now I'm not. Now I'm like this. See, here's the deal. You need to hear me on this. Is that Christianity at its core is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. That's what Christianity is about. It's about awakening the human soul, awakening the spirit, reattaching you to the God who says, I love you enough to not leave you like this and to leave you stranded and to leave you helpless and to leave you hopeless. It's not just about conforming our behavior to look a certain way. It's about living in relationship with the God of the universe who designed you, loved you, and wants to be with you. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. It's not... It's not just, it's not making bad people good. It's making dead people 
alive. And see, here's the irony of the gospel, is that if we can't embrace our need, we can't embrace his rescue. If we can't embrace that before picture, then the after picture means nothing to us. And you see, you may have been in church for so long that you hear that you are dead in your transgressions and sins and you think of somebody else. They were dead in their transgressions and sins. You were. And and if that doesn't grip us, if that doesn't hold us for a second, then these next two words won't either. But these, you have to know, this is the crescendo. This This is the beauty of the gospel. These are the two words that in many ways the whole scripture points to and leads up to is that that was our destiny. That was our state. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. And here's the next two words. But God. But God. You see, if that, if that destiny, if your destiny outside of Christ doesn't grip you, then those two words never will. But if it does, if it does grip you, if it does hold you for a second, if you do realize that's who I was outside of Jesus, then these two words may be the best two words you've ever heard in your whole entire life. But God. In seminary, they joke that this is the biggest but in the Bible. I mean, and if you have your own Bible, circle it, underline it, star it, highlight it, fold the page, whatever you need to do to make yourself remember, this is glorious, beautiful news. You were dead, but... God. See, it wasn't but you worked really hard. It wasn't but you did a whole bunch of really good moral actions. No, 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 no. The gospel isn't about what you did. It's about what Jesus did. You see, the only thing he brought to that party is the sin necessary for those two words to be written. But God. It doesn't say but Ryan. But God. You see, when there was no way... He made a way. When we were dead, he brought resurrection. When we were hopeless, he brought hope. When we were sin-stained, he brought perfection. But God. But God. And we just need to sit in that for a second and let the Holy Spirit preach it to our souls. He is good when we're not. He's alive when we're dead. That he speaks hope when we're hopeless. That there is an after picture that's possible because of those two words. But God. I want to state the obvious to you. Dead people cannot help themselves. People dead in their transgressions and sins can't willpower themselves to believe. They cannot act on their own behalf. They need somebody outside of them to help them. And that's why those two words just explode off the page. But God, now listen to the description of God. 
Because some of your, your views of God are very different than this. And, and I just want to want to press on this a little bit this morning, because if we're going to have a right view of ourselves, we need a right view of God. If we're going to live rightly in this world, we need a right view of God. And let me just describe you to him a little bit this morning, him to you a little bit this morning. But God being rich in mercy, having a wealth of mercy. See, mercy is him not giving us what we rightfully deserve and have earned. But God, having an overflow of mercy, why does he have so much mercy for us? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Even when we were dead in our trespass and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. Amen. See, here's here's the the rescue of God. Breathe new grace-filled air into our dead, lifeless lungs and makes us alive. It makes us alive. So the Bible speaks of salvation, not primarily as making a decision or accepting Jesus. The Bible speaks primarily of salvation as putting our hope and faith in him and being reborn. Being reborn. Something that happens internally to you. You didn't bring a whole lot to your first birth. You you don't bring a whole lot to your second one either. That he, by grace, when you're dead, reaches down and breathes grace-drenched air into your dead, lifeless lungs so that people who are estranged from God wake up to the reality that he loves them, that he's pursuing them, that he has a future for them, that he has a hope for them, that he's redeemed them, that he's adopted them, that he's given them an inheritance, that he's blessed them. Makes you alive. (laughs) makes you alive because of and i love the way that it's written in this verse because it's even in the greek it's it's a little bit stronger even but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us in the in the greek it's like it's this idea of he loved us he loved us he loved us with his love it's it's as though paul just can't get enough words for us to fully grasp What Jesus has done for us. The way that the Holy Spirit has changed us. The great love with which he loved us took us from death and made us alive. Reborn. Redeemed. Saved. To a future that we didn't earn and that we didn't hope for. The the after is so drastically different than the before. This is the way that Paul writes about it in the book of Romans. He says, but God showed his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, when we were his enemies, when we were running in the opposite direction, he loved us. Can I tell you what that, why that's great news for you to, this morning, friend? It's because he loved you at your worst. For some of you, that may be today. And I want to assure you, if it is, He loves you. 
But see, here's what happens as we grow and as we change and as we make progress in the Christian life. And, and then at times take a step back. We, we start to doubt the fact that he loves us. And so he wants to drive a stake into the foundation that says, no, no, no. At the core, your salvation is God loving you when you were dead. So he certainly loves you today. So he certainly loves you now. Just because you made some progress and may have taken a step back doesn't mean that he loves you. And he not only loves you in the covenantal sense, but he likes you. He enjoys you. Because his salvation, here it says, seated you with him. It means that the blood of Christ covers us from every, every wrong that we've ever done, every sin that we've ever committed is hidden in him. It was the idea of to, to be seated with Christ, to be raised with Christ, was the idea of a warrior coming back victorious from battle, back into his town. And the, the town would erupt and the party would ensue and it was the, the king or the, the ruler in that town taking that warrior and bringing him up onto the throne with him and putting his arm around him and saying, we are victorious together. And the Bible says that not based on what you did, in fact, you were dead, but based on what Jesus did, he took you. And he took you with Christ and he seated you with him and he said that his perfection now covers you. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that he, Jesus became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The picture is of relationship of him saying you were dead, but come up. Sit next to me. I'm making you alive based on my mercy my goodness to you. And I love this. Can I just, I wish I could drill down a little deeper on this, but it says verse seven, so that, so that in the coming ages, he might show his immeasurable written richness of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. Here's what that verse says. Here's what it means is that for all eternity, you will never suck it dry. It will, it will never run dry. That what God did for us in Jesus Christ will be appreciated, enjoyed, celebrated, and extended throughout all of eternity. That you're never going to get to the end of it. And so when we sing the song Amazing Grace, and we've been there 10,000 years, even at year 10,000, and we're stepping into a timeless existence, but we'll just use the analogy for now. At year 10,000, we'll still be going, I can't believe it. And this passage is saying it's getting better and better and better and better as time goes on. That you will never run dry. His love will never run dry. It will keep going, keep extending, keep getting better and better and better throughout all of eternity. And at year 10,000, we will stand in more awe than we did at year one. That he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. To us. Wow. Man, man. I love the way that this hymn writer puts it. And she, she writes, it's a she. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every blade of grass a quill? And every man a scribe by trade? 
to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. All of eternity won't be enough time to extend his love to its fullest capacity. Wow. Verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's really good news because you were dead. So, so it's, it's, it's his saving. It's his redeeming. By faith, we put faith in and hope in what Jesus did on the cross. See, faith isn't just a cognitive agreeing with. Faith is a building of your life upon. Faith isn't just building your theology. Faith is building your life. Faith is building your life. And see, what we put faith in is that the work was finished, is that the work was done, is that it was all 100% accomplished. And so faith allows you to sit Faith allows you to rest in the finished, accomplished work of Jesus Christ when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own. The this here pertains to the salvation, the whole faith. None of it. It, it, was, it was a gift of God, not as a result, so that no one may boast. I mean, it's a pretty natural conclusion, isn't it? I mean, what do, we, what, do we, what do we boast in if all we brought to the party was the sin that needed redemption? Nothing. Nothing. This idea of boasting, the word painted a picture for the people back in the first century. It was a picture of a, a military commander gathering his army before a war. And him reminding him, we've trained harder than the other guys. We've, we've trained harder. We've, we've done more. We have more men. We are going to be victorious. And so it's a boasting was, it's a giving of yourself confidence to face what lies ahead. You see, all of us need that in some way, don't we? But he says we boast no more, that no one may boast. You see, our boast is now no longer in what we can do. Our boast is not in what we bring to the table, but in what Christ brought to Calvary. That's our boast. Our boast is only in the cross. Our boast, our hope is only in him. And so our boast is transferred not to what we can do and not to what we can accomplish, but to what he's done. That's our boast. Only in him. Because it's only by his grace and by his mercy that we were saved and that we were redeemed. And you see, here's, I just want to circle us around. I think a key principle is that grace rightly understood leads to a life of gratitude. See, there's no way this blows up in your soul and you're not thankful. There's no way you understand. I was dead and he made me alive and you go, that's sort of cool. (laughs) No, this is like life-defining stuff. This is life, this is eternity-defining stuff. And when you see it that way, oh, Lord, 
that I was wrapped up in me, that I was, that I was dead and you made me alive, that I was deserving of your wrath and I was, and you gave me mercy. That I was a slave and you freed me to run in grace. Oh man. You see, the life that understands his mercy and his grace has unique ways of finding things to be thankful for, even in the midst of fill in the blank. Because he's already accomplished the biggest hill, the biggest mountain that you ever will in your life. And he's been victorious. And a key ethic, a key defining characteristic of us as followers of Christ is that we are grateful people. All right, verse 10. I love this because this is his conclusion. This is sort of his back to, all right, let's get back to the, the good news, get back to who we, that, that, that's who we were. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Jesus made a way for us to be alive in him. And now it's going to talk about in light of grace, in light of his, in light of his mercy, in light of his rescue, where he took us from a, a certain road and a certain destiny and, and made us different, made us alive in him. What now? And it says, for we are his workmanship literally in the greek it's the word poema it's where we get our our word poem or song or art piece masterpiece and here's what paul just wrote is that when we're, we're moved from death to life we become god's song we become his poem Our lives become the pen by which he writes on the canvas of the world how good he is and how great he is and how merciful he is and how gracious he is and how much he has in store for those who would believe. You're his workmanship. Created, made, formed in Christ Jesus for the good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so here's what he says. When he wakes us up and says, hey, welcome to the party. My grace is good. I'm making you alive to me. He says when when we get woken up to grace and his activity and his work in our life, he also commissions us to live in the world as agents of reconciliation, of agents of as agents of change, as people marked by his grace and as his mercy to be completely and totally different from the world around us. You see, the rescue of God, it remakes us and releases us to make much of Jesus. The eyes of the, of the redeemed are always open to people who are dying. People who are dead. And in need of hope. And my hope, my prayer. See, I love this. You don't have to, you don't have to work at it all that much. You just have to see it. Because he's the one who prepared it. He's the one who already accomplished it. And he's just saying, will grace open your eyes enough to walk fully into what I've prepared for you? Wow. Wow. I mean, if that, if that passage doesn't stir something in us, if it doesn't make us go, thank you, Jesus, we're probably not Christians. 
I mean, because it's a story of rescue. It's a story of your rescue. I can remember back in, in October, two, two years ago, being glued to the TV. I don't know if you remember this. Glued to the TV as um, 33 Chilean miners were trapped 2,300 feet under the surface of the earth. And I mean, they were, for days, they were trying to pass messages back up to the surface. And finally, they made a way to, for their commu- communication to be happening. But here's what those guys thought. Those guys thought in their head, in their mind, never going to hold my wife again. Not going to walk my kids down the aisle. Never going never gonna to see them grow up. All these, all this, that's what's in their mind. We are, we're, we're done here. And 69 days later, over two months later, they somehow find a way to put one little shaft down this mine to carry each of the guys up individually. 23 hours worth of work it takes. I don't know if you remember seeing on TV the celebration that ensued as they got to the top. I mean, the families that were around that, that embraced them, the wives who held their husbands, not thinking they were ever going to do that ever again. I started thinking about that as I read this because my guess is if you're around those guys, you hear them tell that story. My my guess is it marks you in some way. My my guess is that if you're around them for any sort of minimal amount of time, they're going to say to you, have I told you about the time I was trapped underground for 69 days? I mean, it might have been a little bit like being around Lazarus after he gets raised from the dead. He probably didn't spend a lot of time talking about the weather. I mean, he's probably not going as beautiful in Bethany today, isn't it? No, he's going, hey, have I told you I was, I was dead? And Jesus came by and said, hey, you should really get up. That's the story he tells. That's the song he sings. And I think in the same way. God's inviting us to be a people who recognize where we came from. Who embrace the great love with which he loved us. That provided us rescue when there was no way for us to rescue ourselves. And to in turn be the people who sing of his praise, who sing of his glory, who sing of his might, and who declare we were dead but he made us alive. Oh, that's good news. That's good news. Let me pray for us.